Good morning, Memphis. I hope you are having a happy holiday. I am so glad you've decided to spend some of your Saturday morning with me. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, their inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So I know a lot of folks are on winter break from school right now, and normally this is the time of year when college students would come back home. Now, college is that time when young people get to explore who they are, and often they're living away from home for the first time. And maybe students didn't get to you know, live away from home this year as much, but college can still definitely have a big impact on their exploration and how they think about the world around us. Um, but what are the experiences of contemporary college students and what really are the impacts of college on folks worldviews. So to talk about that today, I have Dr. Jonathan Cox. Dr. Cox is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Central Florida. Primarily, his research is around racial and ethnic identities and racial ideologies with a focus on college students and millennials. Prior to obtaining his PhD in sociology from the University of Maryland, Dr. Cox worked in higher education in multicultural affairs. Welcome, Dr. Cox, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me here this morning. I appreciate yes. it. Wonderful. We are so excited to have you. Now, I know that you were teaching this semester. Um, so mm -hmm. how was that for you in COVID in 2020? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's definitely been an experience. Um, I would say that for sure. Um, I mean, for us, thankfully, you know, at uh, UCF, um, my sociology, the department I work in um, has a fully online program already. So you can get your degree like pretty much all the way through online. So for us, it wasn't a huge transition to move to more online instruction, um, which is great. I also have a lot of experience teaching online. So that wasn't a big thing. Uh, but it was really interesting just to deal with all the stuff that people were dealing with right. during this right and so just you know I think I've been more lenient and understanding maybe it's the better word for stu with students than I have in the past for sure and I typically am a pretty understanding teacher um, just because of all the stuff that they're dealing with and that most of the time it has nothing to do with the classroom and so that was kind of the biggest challenge and obviously learning zoom since that was the <laughs> platform that everybody in the world jumped on at the same time um, so yes just navigating how to make zoom work and do classes kind of the same way that i did i tried to make it as as close to the in-person experience as i could but it turned out well, students seem to enjoy it, um, but they're definitely, you, you notice a difference, like I'm sure everybody has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's so great to hear you talk about uh, being more understanding, um, yeah. because certainly this has been a very trying time for a variety of different reasons, and really bringing that compassion into our workplace, whether it's with students mm -hmm. or in other, you know, disciplines or fields, I think has been so important this year, because like you said, um, students are dealing with so much and it wasn't you know about the materials it wasn't nope. about school but it was about life yeah exactly right I, mean, I had students that were i mean they're obviously they're talking about their parents and family members who are dealing with covid students themselves would reach out and say hey i got covid what the heck and so mm -hmm. i you know dealing with that i'm in other stuff too because obviously it's not just the pandemic that we're in but all these things that have been going on with regards to racial inequality and racial injustice in our country have also been really weighing heavily, not only on me as a race scholar, right, someone who studies these things, and the same as you, um, but also students who are engaging in this, right? So I have students who were um, going to, regularly going to some of the demonstrations that were happening here in Orlando or in other states that they were in. They talked about their experiences with that. Um, all types of different students doing that. Uh, and then on top of dealing with all this other stuff, right, just the seeing it all the time, being inundated with, you know, the videos of, of Black people and other, um, you know, racial and ethnic minorities being, uh, you know, treated negatively or even killed, right, by police, um, right, so, and the way that the protesters were in all over the, the country, for sure, were being treated by police and other officials, right, just dealing with all that, it was just, amazing um you know it's crazy because I, I did teach one of the classes i taught this uh, past semester was my race course 
And so it was the perfect material, you know, but it's also one of those situations where you're like, ah, this is great that we can talk about these things, but we, we're also dealing with them at the same time that we're talking about it and breaking down like what it means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I felt the same way because I too teach a class focused on race and ethnicity and racism. And for my students, I found that they were really engaging with the material in a way that was very different than previous semesters because of all the reasons why you just mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. They actually can see things very clear happening in real time whereas in previous semesters even if we had some of these same um, injustices going on they maybe weren't forefronted you know Mm -hmm. in our minds in the same way that they have been this year and so I'm wondering for you as you're thinking about you know college students as you're thinking about how they even uh, understand race or thinking about racism um, what do we know about how college students are typically approaching these topics or what kind of um, knowledge sure. Do they bring? sure sure so what's really interesting is that now we're living in this time um, where you know if you're when we talk about college students right we're, you know we think mostly about the traditional age college student right so that 18 to around 24 year old student um, and so for them, typically, right, they're actually coming to college with all of these racial understandings, right? Not only how they, they see themselves as racial beings, but how they understand race in this country, how they see other people. Um, and it's also unique because the, the younger, right, these, that kind of premium age group that we're talking about, um, they're the first generation and maybe now generations because we've got millennials and the, the, the Gen Z right behind them. Um, who are really raised specifically on uh, colorblind ideology mm. right, in ways that other people had not been, right? People in our generation or, or older, um, they weren't raised specifically with their parents or older people telling them, hey, don't treat people differently because of their race. Treat everybody the same, mm-hmm. right? They're kind of going off of that, that, the Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech, right? That's really what they, they hearken to. And so we're looking at generations that have been literally raised on that mentality and so that's running around in their head as they're trying to figure out how they fit into this racial structure. Um, we've had people who are coming to this country from other countries. And so they're trying to figure out and navigate the racial system that we have here. And so by the time they get to college, again, 18 or older, they already have all these different understandings about this. And so they're really well versed in colorblindness, actually. It's really interesting. Again, we haven't seen that in previous generations. Um, and so that's shifting the ways that they're experiencing race and then understanding how these experiences they're going to be having in college are going to work right because mm-hmm. we also know that when you get to college that's one of the first times where you might be interacting with people who are significantly different from you right they may have come from very different places very different family backgrounds um, and that's all on top of maybe being a different race uh, or ethnicity than you are mm-hmm. yeah so you mentioned something this idea of color blindness um, could you talk just a little bit more about what exactly it is and maybe how we might see it happening, you know, in our lives or in real time? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So colorblindness, right, we could think of it as either colorblindness or colorblind racial ideology, effectively the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the dominant racial ideology in this country since the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially um, what happened was that um, at the time, right, white Americans really co-opted the language of the civil rights movement, um, you know, these, these ideas about equality, um, just to, to continue the racial status quo in new ways, right? That's mm-hmm. what we ended up seeing, right? And so again, I mentioned Dr. King's speech, the I Have a Dream speech, mm-hmm. um, where he talked about future generations not being judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And so people really just, you know, mistook that language um, and applied it in ways that he didn't mean, because he was a very race conscious individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we saw is this development of colorblindness and colorblindness it really just uses ideas like equal opportunity or individual choice um, or meritocracy, right? Really big American ideals. <laughs> I had American air quotes there. Um, <laughs> American ideals, right? To, in very abstract ways to explain away race, right? To say that race doesn't matter anymore um, or to oppose practical solutions to racial inequalities that we see, right? So with colorblindness, you know, some of the ways that it works is that people see racial issues as just like natural occurrences, right? They just kind of happen as opposed to people doing things intentionally. Um, Or people of color in particular, um, they might be blamed for their own um, problems because of uh, 
people might point to their culture or their values, right? And say that this is the reason why you're not doing as well. Um, and colorblind is really a base just works to minimize racism and discrimination, right? It doesn't matter. It's not something we should talk about. It's been outlawed right. as a result of the civil rights. And so therefore it's just not a meaningful thing. And so again, people can use this in, you know, people obviously use some of these things in nefarious ways, but the majority of people probably aren't even doing it in a negative way. They just don't know that what they're doing by ignoring race maybe in this very, what sounds like a positive way, is actually just perpetuating the existence of racism and discrimination. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I like how you mentioned, you know, in college, even if it's college on Zoom, you're still interacting with people, like you said, who maybe are different races, different ethnicities, mm -hmm. um, or come from just different regions of the U.S., which already there's, you know, some different cultural differences um, embedded yes. there, or people just of different class statuses. So all of us, we live, especially as we're growing up, very insular lives. We're pretty mm -hmm. much surrounded by people like us, um, and so college can be a really jarring time um, in that way where we're interacting with people where we're like oh this is different and where those racial differences are something we notice naturally right like yes. we see people we're categorizing them by what we mm -hmm. assume are their racial or ethnic background but at the same time combating with this idea like you said of oh race doesn't matter or it shouldn't matter or if i do mm -hmm. notice it then it's bad like i'm doing something wrong Right, exactly. Right. And we see that happening a ton. Right. Because I mean, I even my own experiences, right, when I was in grad school the first time, because, you know, <laughs> let me get all these degrees. Um, there was one of my co members was a really good friend now, um, a white woman, and she told me in grad school, again, she, I was the first black person that she had an in-depth conversation with her entire life. She wow. was like 23 at the time, right? Mm -hmm. But she was from a very white, uh, like suburban area in a Midwestern country where there just aren't that many black people in those areas, right? And so that, that's the reality of, of what we live with in this country. This is an extremely segregated country. And in fact, in many ways, we're more segregated now than we were pre-civil rights. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so people, again, when you think about, particularly for college students, um, you know, they're not, tip the, your typical college student is not making decisions about where they're living, you know, the, the houses that they live in, what their jobs, their parents are doing, all these different things, right? They don't make, they don't have a say as much in terms of who they interact with because they are, you know, they're children. Um, so they get to college and they all of a sudden can start to make these decisions. They're surrounded by people that maybe come from different places. And so then they have access to things that maybe they didn't before. Um, and so that can be a huge driver for how people um, maybe for reinforcing beliefs that they have about race or for hopefully changing and shifting the ways that they're thinking about race. Mm -hmm. And so what do you see as far as your research and your work with college students? Mm -hmm. Are they kind of changing their ideas about race? Are they thinking about uh, maybe race or even racism mm -hmm. differently? Um, is college, you know, expanding their worldview in this way that we kind of have, you know, imagine college as giving you, sure. you know, this new outlook in the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that's a, it's, that's a great question because it, the answer is, it's very nuanced, um, which, you know, is good or bad. It's one of those kind of things that just exists. And so a lot of times it really depends on the particular college and then even more so what that college or university is doing with their students, right? Um, so one of the things that when we think about, you know, issues of diversity, right, just the, the physical presence of people that are different from you, um, what research shows that a lot of schools, they'll have that physical diversity, but the school itself will still be very segregated. People will just kind of hang out in little cliques or groups where people, you know, they don't feel like they're comfortable in other, with other racial groups or the structure of the institution is doing something that really divides people, right, because they're not being intentional about shifting the environment and the culture before they bring in all these different people. Um, and so even if you're at a school that's really, really uh, racially diverse, it doesn't necessarily mean that the students are going to get any of the benefits from that, right? Because if they're making the decisions on their own, a lot of times they just continue the same behaviors and patterns that existed before they got to college. Mm -hmm. Now at schools where people are really intentionally engaging across the color line, then that's where you start to see a significant change in how they understand race and racism, right? Mm -hmm. So there's some research that shows um, that, you know, white students in particular, when they participate in diversity experiences, so maybe a class 
that's specifically supposed to you know, enhance their understanding of diversity um, or activities where there are lots of different types of people. Um, you know, maybe uh, like fraternities and sororities are doing some engagement with different organizations, right? Mm -hmm. um, when they do that, um, all of a sudden it decreases, it starts to decrease over time their colorblind attitudes. Mm -hmm. um, also having friendships, again, across the color line, in particular black friends for white students. Um, that also will decrease their, their level of colorblindness over time as well, right? So it's really mostly, and this is all the research about what happens in college tells basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. It depends on what you do when you're there. Just mm -hmm. having certain things in place doesn't necessarily mean anything because you're not, you know, a student can still decide that they don't want to engage with stuff or it could be, it, there are certain conditions that need to be met in order for people to actually change their minds, thoughts, patterns, behaviors, all those different things. Mm -hmm. So simply me going to college and being at a college or university where there may be some level of racial or ethnic diversity mm -hmm. isn't going to make me less colorblind and more, I guess, <laughs> um, open or understanding or mm -hmm. even inquisitive about other people or what's happening in society. No, you have to, there, there needs to be a level of intentionality that doesn't work, right? So for example, there's some research on white students that are at historically black colleges, universities, right? A very different environment than most of your traditional predominantly white institutions. And so even at these schools, right, where there's a predominance of black people that these white students can interact with and be friends with, um, often what we end up seeing happen is that they still draw from colorblindness in ways that just simply perpetuate their own and maintain their own racial privilege, right? So it's, it's very similar to like political correctness. So often they'll just present themselves as somebody who is woke, right? Aware of <laughs> discrimination, systemic racism, these things, but they're not actually doing anything to help dismantle racism or identify and interrupt the, their own privilege, right? Mm -hmm. So it really matters what they're doing. And so the research show is very clear. Like if you're not if an institution, right, because it's not all on the students, if an institution is not intentionally creating opportunities for students to engage with different people, right, not just race, but across all differences um, in very meaningful ways, right, there needs to be meaningful interaction, nothing is going to happen, right, nothing is going to change. Mm. You know, you just make me think about, especially, you know, throughout this year, especially thinking about this summer and fall when there's so much attention to, you know, diversity and inclusion and reading these different books and, you know, trying <laughs> to get out of this kind of color blindness and thinking about how much of that, you know, really worked or really didn't. And I want to talk more about that, but let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 F. And we're back on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Jonathan Cox, a professor of sociology. And before the break, um, Dr. Cox, you were just mentioning how it's not enough for us to even maybe want to learn more or try to, you know, be quote unquote woke. Um, it's also, we need some institutional support and some specific yes. institutional arrangements. Um, and of course, you know, we've been talking about college students, but I can imagine mm -hmm. this would apply to other types of institutions or jobs or, you know, uh, organizations as well. So yes. what do we know about these intentional institutional changes that can really foster um, kind of learning more about race and racism and getting away from these kind of colorblind ideologies? Yes. And so a lot of that really, again, the, the intentionality speaks to, uh, the necessity of schools to make sure that the experiences that students are having, and not only just students, right, we're talking about students, but everybody at the institution is still going to be impacted by this, faculty, staff, everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and so they need to really implement um, specific intentional strategies for uh, inter-engagement, you know, with whatever differences that, that's going to be happening, right? And so again, this, this goes beyond just, you know, racism and understanding that. And so we, what institutions need to think about is how are they changing or shifting their environment, right? What is it, what are they doing that's going to make students feel like they're welcome in spaces or make students um, feel like this is a space that does actually value diversity and inclusion um, and racial understanding. Um, so those things need to be in place. I um, mean, a lot of that also then is going to point back to what are these students what is it about these students' experiences that um, is built in, right? It's something that they need 
to do, right? Because if for anything, again, whatever it is, if there's, if it's important, there's going to be resources that are available for people. There's going to be an intentional design that's in, in plan, right? Some kind of strategic goals or something, right? And so you need to be able to have all that stuff or else, you know, you're just kind of, it's almost like dumping a bunch of, of different things into a river and you know your students are kind of swimming across the river and you're just hoping that they're going to run into some of the stuff that you dumped in the river as opposed to like changing the structure the, the curve of the river right the turn of it where do students have to stop halfway through right so they need to be doing things like that right and so do you have um what does your curriculum look like do you have are you making sure that across the board not just in ethnic studies or cultural studies or sociology is everybody expected to have a certain base level understanding of diversity and inclusion and that's through um, and you can do that in all areas, right? Are you including scholarship from marginalized uh, folks, right? Um, people of color, are you, are you including that so people can see themselves in it? Not only can they see themselves in the research, but they also know that these things exist, right? Because again, we think back to K through 12 education, most of the time, particularly the, the mandatory education that's happening, we don't have good education about the history of people of color and their contribution to this country and around the world, right? And so are you doing that in college? Are you, are you having those experiences? Do you have support services in place for your students of color, particularly if they are marginalized on your campus? There aren't that many of them, right? So all those different things need to be happening. And if that's not happening um, kind of all at once, <laughs> then you're not gonna, it's not that people won't change, again, because you'll have people that are gonna go out and try to, to, to make the most of their experiences in these ways, um, but it'll be much less likely that a majority of students will experience any of those positive benefits that, that come with those. Mm -hmm. Now, earlier you mentioned how we see a lot of um, positive changes or positive contributions, particularly for white students, when we have mm -hmm. very intentional um, diversity and inclusion initiatives. Um, but also we can often see, particularly among white students who are still, you know, wanting to be politically correct, as you mentioned, mm -hmm or having this kind of performative wokeness. So if we're not trying to get to performative wokeness, um, what is, I guess, maybe the opposite or what is the goal of some of this intentional inclusion? So we're trying to get away from colorblindness. We don't mm -hmm. wanna do the performative, look at me and what I know. So what, is, what are we really trying to achieve? Sure, and so I mean, it and I guess at base, one of, the, one of the things I could say is that we're trying to achieve a reduction or as close to an elimination as possible of racism, right? Broadly racism um, and racial privilege. Um, but then we also want to increase people's, you know, cultural awareness and sensitivity, right? So it's really just about, so when we think about colorblindness, um, often just because of the ways we use language and stuff, we kind of talk about it as it like you either are colorblind or you're not, right? When it's really much more of a spectrum, Right? So people kind of fall up, up to one end or another or in the middle, and it can vary based on the topic, you know, the, the different thoughts you're having, the day you're having, who you're interacting with. So there's all these different things. And so the idea is that you want students to have a much better understanding, a fuller understanding of race and racism, right? Just the impacts of it, that it exists, that it shouldn't be minimized, that it's important for people, um, that everybody has a race, even white people, right? That is a race as well. So just increasing understanding of these things, um, you know, and reducing kind of the normalization of whiteness, right? As like the standard in this country, right? We don't want that to be the case. And so if you reduce those thoughts and ideas, but, and get people to see race in more significant ways, and that's gonna reduce you know, their level of colorblindness for whatever it is, right? So they wanna see race, you want people to see it. You can't, you, especially if you think about people who, you know, they, again, they really espouse, like I believe that there are inequalities that exist. I think racism is terrible. I wanna do something about it, I'm not sure what, but so getting people to understand they need to do something and they need to see race in order to do anything. You can't fix a problem that you can't see, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so that, those are some of the ways we want to do that, get people to live more integrated, um, diverse lives, because people who are more colorblind, typically, or they're more likely to have really racially homogenous circles and probably not even realize it or see that there's an issue with that at all, right? So it's just really about just kind of changing little behaviors and things so that people understand and see race more completely, have a better understanding of stuff and realizing that it's, this is a constant learning thing. It's something you're gonna be doing your, your entire life. It's not like you'll get to a point and you're like, yay, I am 
no longer colorblind at all. That's it. That's not how it works. Yeah. Uh, I know oftentimes when we think about issues of race and racism, we're often thinking of it um, from this kind of like black white binary mm -hmm. or from this black white perspective. Um, but what does research tell us about Latino and Asian students and how they're thinking about race and racism as well? Yes, yeah, and that's, that's great. And so I think because when we look at the colorblind research, I mean, there's lots of good stuff out there, but historically we've seen many more studies on white Americans than we have on people of color. I'm not sure that that's really any different than anything else, but it's something we want to recognize. Um, and so you definitely, like in my own research, I've been trying to, to be very intentional about including other groups as well. And so when, when it comes to um, people of color, right? The, one of the important things is, like you're mentioning, is that they're, these are not homogenous groups, no matter what they are. So even if we look at just, if we were to look at black and white, right, there's not, there are different groups within those categories themselves, right? We have black Americans, um, some are African-American or identify as African-American, others do not identify as African-American. They're Caribbean-American, mm -hmm. they may be uh, of descendants of African immigrants, right? So there's differences there. And it's the same with um, Latinx, Latino, Hispanic, and um, Asian Americans as well, right? We see different groups. People tend to put those, everybody who's Hispanic or Latino in one group and everybody who's Asian in one group, right? There's tons of difference that exists. And so it's the same thing. We see the, the manifestation of that difference with regards to colorblindness as well. And I'll, Maybe one of the easiest ways to explain it is that for people of color in this country, um, and I can step back a little bit. When we think about racial ideology, it's very tied to the racial hierarchy. And so there's a very clear hierarchy in the United States, right? Even if people can't pin it down exactly, they know that white people are on top, um, black people are definitely on the bottom, and then kind of somewhere in the middle are, these, are all these other people of color, right? And so if we think about it like that, um, in terms of colorblindness, Latinos and Asians, um, where they are kind of on the spectrum is one way that's going to impact how they adhere to, fight against, use or not use colorblindness. Mm -hmm. And so um, for if we think about Latinos uh, in this country, if they are, you know, typically again, now we're, you know, we're starting to think about people in groups, but if typically if they are much fair skinned, right, if they can pass for white or they have assimilated into whiteness in many ways, like we've seen a lot of uh, Cuban American immigrants over the, the de recent decades, um, if they're much closer to whiteness, they're more likely to have their racial ideology align with white Americans, right? Mm -hmm. We say, we, and if they're more closely uh, tied or connected to Black Americans or other people of color, then they're more likely to, or they're less likely to use colorblindness. And we see the same kind of thing with Asian Americans as well, too, because of the different racial groups. And so if we look at a lot of East Asian groups, particularly like Chinese or Japanese and Korean Americans, um, they often have racial ideologies that align very closely um, with white Americans, although there are limits, definite limits to that, because um, uh -huh. they tend to see racism and understand race, not understand it, but see it and name it a lot more than white Americans still do. Um, but then you have a lot more darker skinned, browner skinned Asians, like so some Indian Americans, definitely like Filipinos, um, Guamanians, et cetera, who are much more closely aligned with black Americans, right? And so we tend to see it split out in, in some of those ways. Others, again, lots of differences. You know, immigration status is something that could impact people, um, just your general cultural ideas, right? If you are really connected with a home, uh, a home country, mm -hmm. even if you have been in the United States for generations, like that's going to be different because race doesn't operate the same way in other countries as it does in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's so interesting what you said previously, thinking about how, you know, it's okay to talk about race and even see race and it's even necessary mm -hmm. to see race, which is what colorblindness would have us believe is not okay, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't see it, you know, it's bad to even talk about it, but we can't address an issue like racism, which is all about race, if we don't actually acknowledge that race exists, um, mm -hmm. that is being used in very specific ways to dominate and subjugate, you know, certain groups, right? Um, and this idea that um, white people have a race, that is often yeah. kind of a revelation um, to people that, you know, white is a race and like it's okay you're yes. a white person <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah it's so crazy when i think about that right like the i mean that's one of the biggest things that i end up talking with students you know throughout the semester is like you know white 
students, you all have a race too, right? I do a lot of, I'm sure you do too, right? When you ask students to reflect on their own racial identities um, and the, the ways in which people of color tend to reflect versus the ways uh, most white people tend to reflect is very different. Even the white, the white students in most of my classes who are aware that they're white typically talk about it almost in those exact terms. It's just like, I'm aware that I'm white, particularly now that you know, I'm thinking about issues of race or, or, or I'm trying to understand some of this. I know I am white, but then they connect it often to like guilt um, or it's just a background feature or you know, generations back, somebody immigrated from somewhere, but we're white. And so they talk about it much differently. Um, it's not as central as it is in most cases for people of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm wondering if you have found any ways to, um, particularly for white students, to help them generate a positive white racial sense of self. Because I too mm -hmm. often hear a lot of white students who feel, you know, very guilty and maybe even ashamed to certain degrees. Um, and I can definitely understand that even more, you know, in 2020, where there has been so much attention to racism, particularly white mm -hmm. black racism, um, with white people being perpetrators. Um, and so white students feeling almost a sense of like, hopelessness in a way of what they can do uh, but also understanding that for white students they have to they have to have a sense of positive racial identity as well to move them out of that guilt and kind of like I don't know what to do Absolutely. so have you found any um, ways to help white students even think positively about mm -hmm. their uh, having a race <laughs> and then yeah. their own racial identity themselves sure. Sure. Yeah, so I think that really goes back, most of the time what I found is that it, it all ties back to just people's understanding of racism itself, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we have this weird thing in the United States where people will say race when they really mean racism, or they'll talk about racism when they maybe should just be talking about race. And so it, we conflate these ideas a lot. And so I, I really spend the majority of the semester going back and reiterating the same idea that racism at base is not at all about good or bad people, mm. right? Racism is something that we all have uh, some level of, of racist ideas and thoughts and things that go through because of the ways that we're socialized, right? It's not something that we can escape. Um, just our experiences are gonna make us deal with it in different ways. And so I have to pull, back, pull it back to that for students because a lot of times I think that they get stuck on their white identity, it must, if they talk about whiteness or their white identity or race, like you're saying, then that means that they are racist. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case, right? I try to tell them like, we, we, that's not even the right question to ask. We shouldn't be thinking about that because it's not about good or bad, racist or not racist people, et cetera, right? It's just about you know, actions that you're taking, thoughts that you're engaging in and all these other things. And I think once they start to see that just thinking about and talking about race and seeing themselves as, uh, as it's not a, doesn't make them a good or bad person, then they can see themselves as racial beings, as white people that is not tied um, explicitly to like them being this bad racist person, right? It's more about just understanding like this is a part of me, this is who I am, these are the things that lead me here, and this is then how how does this understanding then help me to see my experiences and the experiences of other people differently? because mm. I can recognize race. That's really just all it is about that, kind of pulling that veil back. So that seems to help some, you know, it'd be interesting <laughs> to see, talk to them a few years from now, but. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, now I want to talk more about, you have this idea of talking about being colorful. Um, can you talk more about what that means and why that might be a useful way for mm. having some of these conversations? Sure. Um, and so the idea of colorful came out of research that I've done on, on millennials and their understandings of colorblindness, particularly millennial college students. Um, and what I noticed was that um, at across the, I interviewed and talked with a bunch of uh, students from who were white, black, Latino, and Asian. And what I noticed was that the white students very often um, were, they were much more entrenched in colorblindness, which is, you know, research shows us that anyway, um, but they really just didn't even recognize that their lives were like as white as they were. Whereas <laughs> most of the time, the students of color, um, they live these very colorful lives, right? So they, they had very diverse friend groups, 
um, usually intentionally so, right? Like they made intentional decisions to join certain organizations because it would get them, grant them access to certain groups of people or because they wanted people that more resembled where they came from or, or their friend group in high school or, or you know, all that. And so they're making these intentional race-based decisions about their lives. So they had way more diversity in their lives. They were often, uh, more often recognizing that racism was a factor in either their life, and if not in theirs, definitely in the lives of other people of color. Um, and they were also much more likely to be engaged in some level um, in dismantling or interrupting racism, or like fighting against it. And again, white students, not so much, although there were definitely were white students who lived colorful lives um, yeah, in that sense, just not quite so much. And so based on my research and research that I've been looking at before, uh, people of color just tend to live more colorful lives. And it can be because in some ways they're, obviously they're thinking about this, right? They are a person of color. And so they're gonna be told and you know, told about certain things in certain ways, or they're gonna experience life in certain ways. So that's gonna mean something. Um, so that's, that's a big part of it as well. Um, and so it's just really interesting that they live these very diverse, colorful lives, um, either by their own choices or by choices that are being made for them, right? Again, like, and that's where things like systemic racism come into place and segregation where, you know, it forces people of color to live in certain areas. Um, so they're, they're, and then they, when they go out and work, they're more likely to be interacting with across color lines. So we, we see all that stuff happening um, before college and while people are in college as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and we're here with Dr. Jonathan Cox, whose research focuses on racial and ethnic identities and racial ideologies. So I know this has been a really big year for kind of like investigating our own kind of thoughts and feelings around race and racism. It has been inescapable um, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, but for you as a race scholar, um, what do you think are some of the, I guess, some of the actions that we can be taking as we, you know, think more about how we want to address racism in our communities, but even, mm -hmm. you know, in our country? Sure. I mean, so that's, that's great. It's definitely been a, the, the time of race, whatever, right? That's been happening. People are really, really getting into some of this, which I appreciate and love. Um, and so... Some of the things that I've been suggesting that people really do is um, take charge of their own, you know, racial knowledge, their own learning about race and racism, right? There are tons of resources out there that people can look at, right? Uh, books, all these different books. I have um, uh, Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, right here that I was, you know, reading through a while ago. Um, so there are all these different books that people are writing about race, and a lot of them are written by people of color, right, uh, marginalized scholars, and so those are great resources. There are a lot of movies and documentaries and things that are out, right, um, um, Ava DuVernay's uh, 13th is a great one that's on Netflix, right, which coincides very well with Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. So there are all these different resources, so people can go out and find information on their own. And I say take charge of your own understanding because what we end up seeing, particularly with white Americans, is that they typically will just kind of like turn to their, their black or brown friend and say, tell me about these things, which <laughs> can be good. But you also that means, you know, you're clearly you are putting burden on that person um, when you can use Google. It's a great search tool. Um, it's fantastic. Right. So looking at stuff like that, um, I also encourage people to really just challenge themselves to expand their circle in a way that brings more uh, racial and ethnic diversity into it, right? Just take a, a very honest stock of your life, right? What are the main, who are the main people you hang out with, like the main few, because most of us don't hang out with 40 people, it's just a small <laughs> number. What groups or organizations are we a part of? Where do we go to church? Where do we go to the gym? And see who's there, see who you are interacting with and who you are not and do something to change that. If it's not that diverse, um, if you if you got 10 friends and two of them are people of color only, that's not diverse, FYI, anybody listening. Um, so you wanna try to bring more folks in, right? So create those experiences. Go to a different church, go to a, another organization that is more diverse and try to find, um, you know, just try to interact with people in that way. So then it also doesn't feel like you're trying to make friends <laughs> for the sole purpose of making friends, right? So you can gain something, right? Actually get something out of all of these things. Um, so definitely looking at, uh, at that, changing your circle. Um, and then even just 
trying to be more aware of your own biases, which can be really difficult because if you have an, particularly for implicit or, or unconscious biases, like these, these aren't things that we can find out ourselves or else they would not be unconscious. Um, so, you know, talk to people and ask their tests that you can take to kind of just point out. Um, Harvard actually has a series of implicit associations tests uh, that gets you to that point out, do you have some kind of unconscious bias against various groups, right? So those are great ways that you can just see if you have, not see if you have bias, because you definitely do, mm -hmm. see where it lies and what, then think about what you can do to, to counter that, right? So it's really all about fi uh, finding ways to cross that color line, get to know different people, seeing things from a different perspective, whether that's through readings, videos, et cetera, right? But making sure that those are coming from sources that are diverse as well, right? Don't get your information only from one source, um, particularly not from people of color who are experiencing these things daily. Right? So those are uh, really some great ways that folks can do things. Um, and then one of the final ways for me, which coincides really well with the holidays, is just to challenge people, right? Particularly for those of us who have, or people who have a little bit more understanding, a little bit more advanced understanding of how racism works and exists, or you just kind of can tell like, somebody said something that didn't really sound right say something to that person, right? The vast majority of the time what ends up happening is that somebody will say something that's racially problematic, if not outright racist, mm -hmm. and other people around just won't say anything at all, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's in mixed company or in, you know, it's all people that are really close friends or family, et cetera, right? So say something, say something at the dinner table at, at Christmas mm -hmm. when you, your crazy uncle says some, some <laughs> ratchet about people of color, right? Point it out and be like, hey, what, what do you mean by that? But, you know, you don't have to be confrontational, but, you know, just doing things to interrupt some of that is, is all really helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, I love all of these suggestions. So I was thinking about when you said, you know, diversify kind of even your interest groups. I think that can mm -hmm. be a really a more comfortable way and not yes. you know seeming so abrupt or like you said, like I'm fishing for, you know, friends of mm -hmm. different races. Um, yeah. <laughs> But instead, um, like, oh, I really like to work out. Let me make sure the gym I'm go I go to is racially diverse, right? So that there are mm -hmm. would be more natural cross racial interactions that would happen around a shared interest. So you already have something that you could talk about, right? Yes, um, exactly. It's not that awkward, like, uh, so you know, like trying to right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not speed dating across race. Like you don't need to do that necessarily, right? And then the other thing too is that for, I recognize that it's, it can be more difficult for some people than others, right? Because you may live in a place that just simply is not diverse, yeah. right? But that's, so that's where like the reading and the watching different things, but not just what comes on television because that's not going to be full of stereotypes, right? So, you know, looking at some of these things intentionally, we're also in this Zoom world now, virtual world because of COVID. So maybe figuring out there might be some meetup groups or something that are meeting virtually. So there are ways that you can, you know, learn some of these things, even if you're in a place where you just don't have access. But don't use that as an excuse because most people, y'all got access. It's just a little bit harder to find than you might think. Yes, yes. I love this idea of self-education because Google is there um, dominating our lives, ready to answer <laughs> all of our questions and make suggestions. Right. Um, so, I mean, I love that self-education first and not putting that burden of education onto, you know, your one friend of color or, you mm -hmm. know, your neighbor that you never talked to, but now you want to ask all the questions about, <laughs> yeah. you know, race and racism. Um, you know, like, is this happening to you? Yes, it is. Uh, so I love the self-education of creating kind of more natural cross-racial interactions, but then also being proactive about finding, you know, new opportunities to, you know, talk to people, meet new people. And then finally, you know, what you said about interrupting, right, or calling attention to folks comments that are, you know, racially insensitive or even outright racist. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love the example you gave of just kind of asking that follow-up question of like, okay, wait, what did, you know, what did you say? What did, what did you mean? Right? So it doesn't have to be confrontational. It can just be, hey, I'm calling this, calling attention to it um, to try to like tease it apart more. Mm -hmm. um, but yes. do you have any other suggestions of how to maybe call attention to or even call out some of these? Sure. Sure. Uh, I mean, again, so a lot of times what people end up um, encountering are jokes. That's a big one, right? And so, I mean, you can simply 
tell people like, hey, like, you know, I know that was supposed to be a joke. It wasn't really funny, right? It's not funny to joke about people's race. Um, again, I, I find it just asking the question of like, well, you know, what did you mean by that? Why is that funny? Like that in and of itself makes people stop and have to think about what it is that they said. Um, let me try to think of some other things that, that folks can do. Because a lot of this, again, it really is just about stepping in. Because the like, if people, once you start thinking, looking for these things, you really just realize, oh, somebody said this, somebody said that, somebody did this, and then just nobody said or did anything about it, right? So calling that out. Um, also, it's also not just about other people, right? So calling yourself out. You can stop yourself if you say, if you say something, and then as soon as you say it, you kind of have this twinge of like, mm, was that cool or not? That probably is, is your body telling you or your mind telling you like, mm, something wasn't right about that. Think about it. Right. And again, just what I also talk to students about a lot is that just because you think about or question something doesn't mean that you're throwing it out the window. Right. You can come right back to the original idea, but it's good to be able to interrogate it and say, like, why do I have these beliefs? Why is it that um, I tend to shy away from saying uh, the race of somebody if they're at all? Right. If, it's, if I'm talking about a black person, why am I scared to say black? Right. Why do I feel like that's not something I should be talking about? Why do I not want to say that I'm white or Asian? Um, why is, you know, and again, we're also, I also don't want to make it sound like I'm only talking to white people about what they can do, right, as well. Um, and people of color, you know, can experience these things as well. They can also engage in some of these things as well, too. I talk to students all the time who, who, um, who talk about how other students of color kind of put stereotypes on them, right? This happens a lot in particular for, in colleges for um, Asian American students, um, you know, with, with the whole, uh, model myth minority right where Asians are supposed to be these these whiz kids and, and doing great so they experience comments from other students all the time or even faculty members right and so they can experience these same things or they can be the ones that engage in this behavior towards other people right and so you can point it out um, in in mixed companies where you often see a lot of this too right and so hey why did you say that um, can you tell me a little bit more about why you might have this idea or where did you get that information from just asking questions is a great way to do it non-confrontationally um, and still point out the fact that, you know, maybe what that person said was not something they should be saying again. Yeah, absolutely. I love this idea of just asking questions because uh, it can be scary when we're learning new things about ourselves, let alone, yes. you know, opening our eyes to maybe things around us that we have thought were okay, but now we're like, you know, what? actually that's not okay. Um, and especially as we're in the holiday season and spending time with family, whether in person or virtually, and a lot of the times that kind of comfort of family is where you might hear a lot of kind of like <laughs> really racially insensitive jokes that have just become you know a kind of a part of your you know family talk right those kind yes. of behind closed doors conversations uh, so this can be a very awkward time for a yeah. lot of families um, in general for the holidays, but also this year thinking about, you know, election and, you know, election results mm -hmm. and things like that. So this is a perfect opportunity um, to practice kind of saying, hey, yes. what did you, what did you mean by that? Absolutely, absolutely. I do that. And then, you know, obviously too, um, we're talking a lot about interpersonal interactions, um, but you know, Folks need to remember that racism is systemic and structural, right? So there are things, if you are one of those people that, that that's just going to be really hard for you to like say something to somebody else, okay, fine. There are other ways that you can really work to dismantle racism and be anti-racist, right? And so you, we just came out of the elections, right? So you can rethink the way you're voting. Maybe don't vote for people that espouse, that regularly espouse very negative racial views. Mm -hmm. That could be one thing. You could support businesses that are run by people of color, um, or particularly in upper level administration, right? Managers and, and high owners, um, think about that, right? So it's all these different ways that you can dismantle racism at the systemic level too. So it's not just about saying things to the individual, right? Because that's, that's probably one of the biggest things with regards to racism, and even when we think about colorblindness, is that it, it doesn't have anything to do with the individual person, right? It's a systemic and structural thing. If we got rid of all of the racist people, if they could take some kind of pill and all racist thought was gone, we would still have discriminate, we would still have racial disparities, racial inequalities, and racism because it's built into the system. And so you got to do stuff systemically, structurally, and interpersonally as well. Yes, I love thinking about these multi-levels, the way that we can disrupt and dismantle racism 
through these multiple levels of society. I think we saw a lot of conversation and attention um, turn to this, again, thinking about election and people really like thinking about, for example, voter disenfranchisement mm -hmm. um, as, oh, as an example of racism and something, you know, concrete actions that we can take to rethink voting, how voting is done. Um, gerrymandering right and thinking about you know these multiple <laughs> exactly. levels of voting um and how that has historically been um tied to racism and even contemporarily how we see those same things you know yes. happening so i think that's a perfect example of what you said like even if uh maybe individual racists right as we like to think about it aren't governing the process the <laughs> policies um are mm -hmm. still racist in and of themselves and so we can think about even if we're not the um interpersonal interrupters, we can think about <laughs> structurally what are maybe policy changes that we might be able to get involved in or other areas absolutely. of impact that we could have. Yes, absolutely. So as we are coming to a close with our time this morning, I just wanted to give you the opportunity because I know we talked about a lot of different <laughs> things, really big topics, right? Topics yes. that maybe folks aren't you know, used to talking about or even hearing about. Um, so if people maybe joined us late, um, what is one key takeaway that you would just like to leave people with as we're thinking about these big ideas, both about race, about racism, mm -hmm. and then even thinking about the young people in our lives who maybe are thinking about these topics for the first first time. Sure, sure. Uh, I think if I was going to leave people with, you know, really, I guess it would be two, two things, but both very short. Um, things I've already said. So one, racism is not about good or bad people, right? That we really have to help people understand that it has nothing to do with you being a good person or a bad person, right? People can engage in racist actions or actions that implicitly support Right, the existence of racism, you know, again, without knowing it, without meaning to, like your intentions don't matter, right? It's really just about that. And so it's not about you being good or bad. So if you divest yourself from that, then you can see it a little bit better. Um, so that would be that would be the biggest, one of the big things. And the other one would just be, you gotta see race, right? If, if any kind of racial inequality is a problem at all, and most people will say that there is at least some, mm -hmm. you can't solve a problem that you're not willing to talk about. It just, it's impossible. There's no problem on earth that will be solved by ignoring it. <laughs> so you gotta, you gotta see race. It's not a problem. Those would be my, my two takeaways. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here with us this morning, Dr. Jonathan Cox. It was such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great to do this with you. Thank you so much to Dr. Jonathan Cox for joining us this morning. I was really encouraged by what he said about, you know, we can't solve a problem that we say we don't see. And really just thinking about taking those brave acts of seeing, you know, what's around us and not being scared to talk about, in this case, and to acknowledge and talk about racism. And so for today's positive note, I just wanted to end with this quote that says a person who never made a mistake never tried anything new so i know for a lot of us as we're thinking about how can we be anti-racist how can we make positive social change you know it can be scary because we don't want to do it wrong um, but there is room for all of us as we think about um, moving forward this is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Central. I will be here and I can't wait for you to join me again next Saturday.